Today on the Women Mind the Water Artemis series on womenmindthewater.com, I am speaking with Hoku Cody, a native Hawaiian seabird biologist and lifelong ocean lover, protector, and advocate. Hoku advocates for community stewardship in actions that revitalize traditional rights within Hawaii's natural and cultural resource management industry. Hoku currently works with the National Ocean Protection Coalition. In this capacity, she creates and supports marine protected areas. Hoku also is working to have the Pacific Remote Islands designated a National Marine Sanctuary. The Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast on womenmindthewater.com engages the artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. Today, I'm speaking with Hoku Cody. Hoku is a native Hawaiian and lifelong ocean lover, protector, and advocate. She acknowledges a deep kinship with the ocean's creatures through a broad lens that marries conservation, community, protection, diversity, equity, inclusion, and culture. Hoku co-founded a program that works in partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. This program employs the principles of community stewardship into management actions at Kilauea Point National Wildlife Refuge. Hoku also initiated the Kiamanu Project. It facilitates a multi-stakeholder cooperative for the procurement and repository of salvage-appropriated seabirds. The cooperative effort revitalizes the use of seabird parts and feathers in socio-religious ceremonies across the way. Welcome, Hoku. I feel extremely grateful that we have the technology to connect you. It turns out not in Hawaii, but in Cozumel with me in Maine. I am honored that you are joining me today to talk about Hawaii. I'd like to begin by briefly providing for our listeners an overview of Hawaii's history. Hawaii was an internationally recognized kingdom until 1893, when American and European interests overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. Five years later, Hawaii was annexed by the U.S. Nearly 60 more years passed before it became our 50th state. But it was another 30 years before the U.S. government formally apologized for its role in the overthrow of Hawaii's native government. Hoku, let's talk about Hawaii in broader terms. I imagine most listeners have a picture in their minds of Hawaii. I think we might all agree that it consists of a group of tropical islands situated in the Pacific Ocean. Some listeners probably think of Hawaii in terms of the ocean, volcanoes, and vacation. I'm not sure how many think about Hawaii as a homeland. Hoku, it might be helpful for you to provide insight into how a native Hawaiian views Hawaii. Thank you so much, Pam, for having me in. And great summary of the history of Hawaii in relationship to the United States. And and, and for me, you know, I am not nearly as old as Hawaii <laughs> is, is as long as a statehood. Um, I was born in the 80s. Uh, and, and as long as I've been alive, I've, I've grew up and been fed by and held by the ocean. Um, I think there are different 
experiences that people have being from Hawaii as well as being Native Hawaiian. For me, I come from a family of ocean people. So naturally for me, I grew up by the ocean. Uh, many of my days and my off time outside of the obligations of you know family and school or even within the obligations of family, we were by the ocean. Um, some of my most formative as well as my most happiest uh, memories are near the ocean growing up. Um, that's I, I, outside of ocean, I grew up in a musical family. We played a lot of music, both at the ocean and at home. Um, I also danced hula and played sports. And um, for me, there was there was no better place. I think as as I started to get older and went to you know university, I originally was a, a graphics and new media major and got a bachelor's in that. And as I got that, I found out that it was possible to have a job at the ocean that was not a surfer or professional surfer or a lifeguard that you could in fact have a job that spoke towards or even acted towards helping or taking care of the ocean. Uh, and so that's kind of how I landed as a marine scientist today or my marine biologist. I identify with Hawaii is very much um, the ocean is as much of my quote unquote homeland as it is my home ocean. So what are, would you say are the, is the most pressing issue or the most pressing issues that faced the Hawaiian coast? You know, when we look at life in the islands um, and as well as if you look to traditional knowledge, uh, we, we have this creation story called the Kumulipo. And the Kumulipo is a creation story that speaks of you know, in a Hawaii, the origins of a Hawaiian existence and some of the first things that were born out of the darkness, the darkness being the most primordial um, start of life. Some of the first things that were born was uh, ukukoa and a pukoa, which is a coral polyp and a coral head. So in fundamentally, we would look at coral reef ecosystems as some of the most important things to look at and to take care of in an island ecosystem. Today, there's a lot of coral, uh, coral reef ecosystems along our shoreline that are also you know, inundated by development and many people wanting to go and snorkel and be part of that. And, and while we are more than happy to share our aina and our place with the world in hopes that they get the same messages from as we get, uh, it, I would, you know, without corals, near the islands or without corals as an extension of our lands, um, it would be really hard to sustain an island lifestyle or ecosystem. I would, I would say that that is important. Thank you for including the Hawaiian cultural perspective. And I'm wondering how much of that is considered in decision-making. Uh, I believe that approximately 10% of the state's current population is Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders. So how does that affect the decision-making process, particularly when it comes to conservation and preservation issues? I guess, personally speaking, uh, I would consider conservation to be an uphill battle in Hawaii. Um, politically, there's you know, with 10%, as you said, 10% of the population is Native Hawaiians. Uh, we are, we are most, there's more Native Hawaiians that live outside of Hawaii than in Hawaii. Uh, and, and so 
I would say that it's a it's a small but mighty perspective, deep uh, sense of responsibility. Uh, some would call it an ancient mandate to protect and love it, um, and make sure that it is as pristine as it was when I received it in my lifetime. And I hope to pass it on to the next generation in as good or better condition as I received it. Well, I know in the bio bio that um, I was provided, it said that you were um, a seabird biologist. And so I wanted to ask you in the uh, intro, I said um, salvage appropriate when it came to seabird parts and used in uh, socio-religious um, actions. And I wonder, could you define for me what salvage appropriate means and how it relates to conservation? Sure, uh, very um, very complex terms I share there. Uh, to be specific, um, because most times when I say we're gonna use seabirds uh, to incorporate or revitalize practices within uh, traditional ceremonies, oftentimes people tend to think that we are taking live birds and killing them. Um, and that is, I, to be clear, that's not the case. They are, when we say salvage, that most, most definitely means that they are already dead uh, and, you know, and, and we either collect them fresh dead or we, pro we provide a system where others work, you know, there's a collaborative effort. So maybe perhaps myself or practitioners, cultural practitioners, perhaps we are not the ones collecting it, but we have to relay messages to the scientists, the biologists or managers of what would qualify to be part of traditional ceremonies. Um, so salvage appropriate quite simply means that, you know, these birds are dead um, and they could have died from a, a few number of things. In Papahanaumokuakea, we have birds that are salvaged uh, right in, right on the land, right on the island or atoll. Uh, most often they, they die from plastic uh, ingestion. They eat plastic and will you know, mal malnourish and they will die. And hopefully, you know, and it, it is our, it's the hope of, we hope to gather them at a, at a point of their, pro like a dying process, if you will, uh, that's more fresh than decay. Um, and then in the main Hawaiian islands, they are often uh, procured from partnerships with wildlife rehabilitation centers, uh, national wildlife refuge uh, places. Um, those are usually often um, when you have people um, exist uh, cohabitating with birds, you will have issues of light pollution, uh, perhaps cars will drive and hit mm. them. Um, and so they die uh, due to other factors, uh, as well as also still having plastic in them. And so we work closely with managers, biologists, and folks who have that kind of access and ability um, to, you know, instead of taking these birds in the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, instead of, you know, once they're done necropsying and, and, and determining what the death is or, or what have you, instead of them tossing it out quite haphazard, hastily or maybe in haphazardously, we say, hey, maybe consider an opportunity to have this bird live a little longer in the hearts and minds of the community through these ceremonies. 
in in this way of picking you know allowing this conversation to happen to go from the hands of federally protected into the hands of culturally protected uh we have an opportunity to to not just save our seabirds but also save our relationship to these places and and each other uh just seabirds as a whole uh a living resource very vital to the lifestyle and to the survivability of oceanic people and island people uh from and they're not just useful when they're dead they're useful alive they tell you they tell you all kinds of things seabirds are your nature's alarm system they tell you you know if you have seabirds in in your community uh that is an indication of a well maintained a very um ecologically sound environment you have uh the ability to tell the weather you have the ability to tell the climate patterns of the year uh most seabirds are usually um seasonal in the way of the the way in how they come back to land right so a lot of their nesting habitats can can give in other indications to um environmental patterns um and then and then as they you know pass on and transition into the next realm they're often celebrated within ceremonies uh using lays um they make feather lays they can be used uh as part of staffs like wooden staffs with feathers mm -hmm. on them um almost all of them are an indication of the ability to communicate with a realm that we as humans are not able to so in a hawaiian perspective you know feathers uh and birds in in hawaiian the word for bird is manu um so manu uh, especially seabirds and forest birds no um they are amazing conduits of mana uh mana meaning the spiritual energy of you or your family and your people um so the presence of seabirds in your community is is a very rich and um abundant uh life so let's turn our discussion to the Pacific Remote Islands National Marine sure. Sanctuary isn't there already a remote islands national marine monument and can you tell me the difference between a national marine monument and a national marine sanctuary there yes there is a uh national marine monument that exists within the pacific remote islands uh the pacific remote islands make up five units is kind of to glaze over you know a lot of the details but there's five units across this mid area of the pacific i'd say it's about 1000 miles southwest of hawaii within those five units there's actually uh so there's five units but there's seven islands and islets and atolls all together within those five units when uh the protections were originally pursued in 2009 they were given a national marine monument status um through the antiquities act um with protections from the shoreline to the 50 mile not 50 nautical mile uh zone in the ocean and then in 2014 the PRI coalition what is known as the Pacific Remote Islands Coalition was formed to try and expand those protections from the 50 nautical mile out to the 
200 Nautica Mile um, EEZ, which is the exclusive economic zone. So in 2014, they tried to protect all five units to the full extent and was only able, through the Antiquities Act, uh, was only able to protect three of those five units. The two that remained was Howland and Baker Island, as well as Kingham and Reef and Palmyra Atoll. Palmyra Atoll is usually known today as one of the premier research field stations in the world, um, part of one of the last or one of the last remaining wild, healthy marine ecosystems in the world. So today, in, in today's age, meaning this year, the PRI coalition has pursued to finish the protections, to, to continue completing those, those protections for those last two units for Palmyra Atoll, Cayman Reef, as well as Howland and Baker Island. What's the current status of the Pacific Remote Islands National Marine Sanctuary? So currently, the Pacific Roman Islands National Marine Sanctuary has just finished their first uh, or has just finished the what's called the public scoping comment period, what, which is what I was just alluding to, that the public had an opportunity to provide input towards the, you know, whether the nomination was legit or not, or, you know, if they want to give uh, critiques towards it or, or caveats, um, that public comment period closed on June 2nd. And so now we wait, uh, the public, including myself, we wait for the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries to review all the comments, uh, analyze them and incorporate them into the federal register. And then from there, the Office of National Marine, Marine Sanctuaries uh, drafts a management plan according to the nomination and the comments. And then uh, what what happens after that is what's called a, I call it the second public comment period, but that's not the formal term. What that means is after the management plan is drafted, the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries then goes back out to the public again. It releases the management draft management plan and says, hey, here's our draft, given all the comments and the nomination, uh, and here's our draft management plan. And then they will go out to the public again asking for comments and critiques towards the management plan. And that won't happen for, um, let's see, it's June. It, it won't happen till next year, sometime, maybe February, March, or April. Is there some cultural input that Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders would like to see on the management of the um, Pacific Islands, remote Pacific Islands National Marine Sanctuary? For Pacific Remote Islands, there were three big a request in the nomination. Uh, the first one was that the entire area be fully protected to the full extent of the, the exclusive economic zone. The second one is that it, the renaming of the Pacific Remote Islands, which is kind of already is separate from the nomination, it was kind of already in play to be renamed. Um, we are hoping that the process of renaming happens in a a culturally appropriate and collaborative framework, uh, meaning we would like input from the Pacific Islanders to, to help rename this area. Uh, and the third ask, which is uh, that we, the third ask is that the National Marine Sanctuary have a co-management system that is inclusive of Pacific Island voices 
at the equal to the decision making, uh, equal to the level of decision making as that of the federal managers. Okay. Well, let's explore just for a minute the issue of balancing ocean with social justice. I think our listeners already support efforts to promote a healthy ocean, but they may not have considered what costs such efforts have on segments of a local population. How can we be more mindful citizens in the work toward achieving a healthier ocean while also balancing uh, cultural, local cultural issues? Yeah, I really, I really, really deeply appreciate this question. Uh, you know, when we, I think generally when we speak of the ocean, we tend to think of it separate than our life, whether we are from an island community or from the continent or, you know, from somewhere else in the world. Um, but, you know, as humans on earth, we have to find ways that humbly and lovingly remind ourselves that we are, this world is two thirds ocean. And so when we speak of social justice and ocean, you know, environmentalism, it's, to me, it's one in the same. Um, how do we, how do we be better? You know, it's, it's, it's recognizing, you know, it's recognizing that everything we do impacts the ocean and it's hard to kind of equate what we do and perhaps the Rocky Mountains, how that affects the ocean that's thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, one of the biggest uh, ever-present problems in the ocean is plastic pollution. Uh, so many of uh, of what we consume and what we need for convenience in our lives, you know, comes from the from the privilege of having or comes from the from having plastic helping us get it to us a little more conveniently. And I think that you know addressing plastic pollution on a daily basis is an important thing to look at. Um, on a larger scale, when we look at social justice on a broader broader combo as intersected with ocean, we have so many, there's so many things that we can, we can do every day. Um, I will start first by saying, uh, you know, sometimes we fight for a healthy ocean and yet we do it at the expense of a healthy community. Mm. And um, I think that you know, as, as islanders or even just people on this earth, like we have to recognize that uh, healthy communities and, and healthy oceans are, are one and the same. So where can listeners learn more about the sanctuary? The Pacific Remote Island Sanctuary, they can yes. learn more at protectpri.com. That is uh, the coalition's website. We've got a bunch of uh, information there to, to look at. Uh, feel free to email protectpri at gmail.com if you got, if you feel you've got some sort of you've gone to the website and you've seen hey it's not it doesn't have something I want to ask so feel free to reach out and email us. We're happy to you know chat and talk story. Yeah. So I am really grateful for to you for being on the Women Mind the Water Artivist series podcast. I expect listeners have gained new eyes with which to look at Hawaii and in assessing the challenges that face our ocean. I'd like to remind listeners that I've been speaking with Hoki Cody. Hoki is a native Hawaiian and ocean advocate and a seabird biologist and a proponent for community stewardship in approaching conservation and management issues. Hoku Cody is the latest guest on the Women Mind the Water Artivist series podcast. 
The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com, Museum on Main Street, and YouTube. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on womenmindthewater.com, on iTunes, and Spotify. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.